The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome everybody. You're watching Squawk Box with Karen Cho and me, Jeff Cutmore. Let's get into your headlines. Wall Street in sell-off mode as 10-year Treasury yields hit a two-year high with investors gearing up for the possibility of a rate hike at next week's Fed meeting. But BlackRock's Larry Fink telling CNBC he is not concerned about impending higher rates. I actually believe having a 2.5% short-term rate, which means, you know, what is that? That's 10, that's 10 tightenings if they had that. A 2.5% short-term rate is going to help a lot of savers finally earn money in their savings. Goldman Sachs is one of the big drags falling almost 7% as the U.S. lenders' costs come in higher than expected. In the biggest tech deal of all time, Microsoft agrees to pay $69 billion for video game maker Activision Blizzard. This is our opportunity to fight, to compete on the largest platform out there in gaming, which is mobile devices. That's critically important to us. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken heads to Europe in a bid to defuse Russia tensions. While Ukraine's ambassador to the EU tells CNBC Europe's ability to respond is weakened by one key factor. It's a difficult issue because EU is really dependent uh, on, on Russian gas and uh, sometimes it's uh, in the center of the discussion, not only in the EU but in, in some member states. So very good morning, everybody. Let's kick off the program just delving into this uh, set of numbers from ASML. So we've got full year and uh, quarterly numbers from the Dutch uh, semiconductor equipment manufacturer. Um, the headline numbers um, look pretty much uh, in line with the guidance, um, although there are some highlights in here that it's worth pulling out, and I think a lot of it has to do with the state of the broader chip market. And the headline, I think, is that the group is looking for 2022 net sales to grow around 20% compared with the 2021 number, which is a reflection of the underlying strong demand. They've reported a, uh, an 18.6 billion net sales number uh, for 2021, uh, 5.9 billion net income on that figure. The uh, group is uh, talking about a significant improvement in the margin line. So the gross margin of 54.2% higher than guided due to the strong installed base revenue, according to the CEO. Uh, a bookings line on the fourth quarter coming in at uh, 7.1 billion, including uh, 2. 6 billion from certain business lines. We are experiencing higher demand for our systems than our current production capacity can accommodate, says the CEO at this point. The company talking about a decent increase in R&D costs of around 760 million euros. 
the um, group then uh, delivering, I think, a strong set of numbers this morning and also signalling that their expectation is that this underlying strong demand in the chip market will run into 2022, Karen. Uh, Jeff, I'm just looking at some earnings too. Richmond has been crossing with a statement around the third quarter and we've had strong sales up 32% at constant exchange rates and by 35% at actual exchange rate. When you look across these sales growth, uh, double-digit sales growth across all regions, channels and business areas, this is key. Don't forget, as we've looked at the pandemic, there have been different jurisdictions that have been hit and different various channels too that have been impacted, namely that the retail uh, in actual stores has suffered at times with closures. So it's interesting to see a bounce back across the board. And they also cite the performance across the three business areas. The market was looking for jewellery to do a lot of heavy lifting here, a high-end market of timepieces and other jewellery items. And jewellery masons have posted uh, growth in sales of 38%, at constant exchange rates, plus 41% at actual fashion and accessories. And in the similar range, actually, sales growth of 37% and uh, specialist watchmakers growth there of 25% at constant rates. So uh, the company accelerating, as you can see. Uh, and uh, just uh, digging into to more lines, the company's talking about uh, what they've got at uh, actual exchange rates and constant levels, the pre-pandemic levels substantially exceeded with sales up double digits across all regions and business areas as well as online and offline retail. Outstanding performance in the Americas, in particular their site, Asia Pacific and the Middle East Africa. Europe and Japan resuming growth up double digits. So still a catch up there from Europe and Japan versus a bigger balance that you're seeing in some of the other areas. But uh, they are talking about the performance being led by that jewelry mason business still. So uh, fascinating to see the numbers come through from Richmond. Don't forget luxury has been bid up in Europe in recent times. Uh, investors getting back on board this trade. Uh, just a quick line on the cash position for the group. Uh, this has amounted to $4.9 billion up from 2.9 billion uh, same time a year ago. So that cash pile grows. And I think that's what a lot in the sector look for, where some of the acquisitions could lie with some of these big luxury names, Jeff. Yeah, Karen, thanks very much indeed for that. And of course, a big focus on the uh, corporate earnings this morning and how they're going to feed into market expectations. But you all know it was a fairly choppy day yesterday as far as the US indices are concerned here. And generally, the... Um, um, pundits who scribble about these things couldn't really find anything specific beyond perhaps the Goldman Sachs numbers being weaker than expectations. But largely this all comes back to the issue of whether the Fed is going for four rate hikes this year. And I was trying to think of a useful analogy for you about this. Is it, is it like when you're in a four-lane highway in the States and you're in the wrong lane and you're looking to get out of the exit and suddenly you've got to cover those four lanes without upsetting everybody. And it feels a little bit like that when it comes to how the market now is trying to adjust expectations and reprice where we're going to be on interest rates. Maybe a better analogy actually is if you are water skiing and you are trying to change course and you are going back over the bow wave that is coming off the vessel that is towing you. That's how it feels. It's very choppy. We're lurching from one day highs to then one day lows and just to put some of what we're seeing in context here just so you understand exactly how far we've come the nasdaq is now 10 percent below its 52 week high if you look at the technicals 
for this market. They are starting to trouble some uh, technical investors. Both the Russell, which is the small cap index, and the Nasdaq are now below their 50-day moving average and their 200-day moving average. And those things, when you look at the charts, start to wrinkle a few noses and raise a few eyebrows. So it just tells you a little bit about how far we've come at this point. I also, if we're in the realm of the um, a technical analyst, I also like to talk a little bit about the transports because they focus on the transports as a signifier of broader economic strength in the United States. If things are going well in the economy, you expect your transports to be doing well here. So both the Russell 2K and the Dow Jones transports are more than 14% away from their 52-week highs here. So we do need to worry about inflation and interest rates, but we also need to worry about slowing growth momentum as well, potentially. Just something else to put on your breakfast plate first thing in the morning. What about the Treasury curve then? So obviously inflation expectations and what the Fed is likely to do starting to cause some movement here in the Treasury curve. Um, most people will focus here on the 10-year note, but the more important thing you need to bear in mind is, one, the rate of change, how quickly we see these moves, and two, what does the shape of the curve actually look like between the twos and tens as we move from short-term cost of money through to uh, things like mortgages, longer-term money here, and it is still worth pointing out that the uh, spread is currently still relatively steep here. So I think we saw something like an 82-bit uh, spread yesterday between the 2s and the 10s as we got that big move, which tells you that the curve is still uh, not flat. It has some steepness in it, but something you should bear in mind as you go further out the curve here, we don't show you the 20-year very often. We focus on the 10s and the 30s, but the 20-year note yield is now higher than the 30-year. It's just something to bear in mind and keep your eye on. So that Goldman Sachs story, we mentioned it, didn't we? Let's have a look at the US banks because the argument is, and you hear it over and over again from the analysts, that um, higher interest rates, higher policy rates uh, lead to a better return on net interest margins for the banks. It should be broadly positive, but yesterday it was just one of those days where everything got beaten up and there were some serious questions being asked about why Goldman Sachs missed on the quarterly profit and indeed why the expenses charge was so much higher. What about the US techs? Um, surely the US techs would have got a little bit of excitement from the Microsoft bid, but no, not at all. As you can see, we've already talked about the NASDAQ and where we are across the technology stocks, the, the, the key stocks that um, the market tends to focus on. It, it was just a very difficult day all the way round. Here in Europe, there's one yield that I think we are all uh, very much focused on, just to see whether we ultimately go positive on this 10-year Bund yield. And we came very close yesterday to uh, sticking that positive number on the 10-year Bund yield. We're not quite there yet, but... I wonder how the ECB will be thinking about this. The ECB has been telling us all the way along that it is not time to start tapering aggressively and increasing the policy rate. The market, though, 
thinking about this slightly differently and the bond yields are being dragged along by this movement we're also seeing in the Treasury curve. Karen. We've been waiting a long time to see that bond yield flip positive, haven't we, Jeff? And we'll be watching it very closely. On the meantime, surging bond yields are putting more pressure on stocks today. US futures right now are tipping to what looks like another dumpy day stateside. Speaking with CNBC, BlackRock's Larry Fink says aggressive Federal Reserve action could flatten the curve and even push it negative. The shape of the yield curve is going to be the critical issue that's going to determine the economy and there has been a lot of noise about, a lot of people think the yield curve is going to be uh, very steep. I don't believe that. And I think I've said that in your show in the past. I think the yield curve is going to be flattening. I, you know, and I can even see if the Federal Reserve is very aggressive, uh, I can see a, you know, a negative yield curve. Um, but, you know, I do believe we will find ways to arrest inflation over the course of the next year or two. But we're making all these adjustments right now. And, and we are in an inflationary period right now with, you know, with last print was 7 percent. So um, this is something we're all going to have to adjust and we're all going to have to live with. But that does not mean the equity markets have to fall. Larry Fink there. Well, shares in Goldman Sachs fell more than 7% in Tuesday's session. Uh, The Wall Street giant posting a uh, fourth quarter revenue beat, but they did miss on profit estimates. Uh, They fell 13% to $3.9 billion or $10.81 per share. Goldman pinned the profit fall on rising operating expenses, including pay and benefits, technology and litigation costs. It also saw trading volumes fall 7% after a bumper 2020 amid the pandemic. Octavio Morenzi joins us. He is the CEO of Opimas. Um, Octavio, good to see you this morning. Just um, put the results in some context for us. What does this now signal about the phase we are in for banking profitability and for Goldman Sachs specifically? Well, I think if you look at the U.S. banks overall, they've had a fantastic two-year run. Since the beginning of the pandemic, they've had almost their best uh, phase ever. And that seems to be sort of be coming to a close now. So they've been very reliant on revenues and profitability from investment banking and trading activities. And that's basically won the day for them over the course of the past two years. And that seems to sort of be coming to a halt now. So we've seen trading activity come way down. Uh, revenues, both in equities trading and fixed income trading, are down at most of the banks. Um, and and investment banking is still very, very strong. But if markets become choppy now and continue on the trajectory there so far, I think we'll see investment banking revenues come down as well. So people could be much, much less, less likely to issue bonds in a rising interest rate environment. I think a lot of corporates issued a lot of bonds in the last quarter trying to get bonds out before interest rates rose. And so I think what's going to see in this first quarter is going to be some softness there as well. So I, there's no real momentum anymore in, in the banking stocks. Lending is, is up marginally at the large lenders so it doesn't really impact someone like Goldman Sachs but if you look at JP Morgan or Wells Fargo or Bank of America that's a very important factor that seems to be pretty soft home lending is down quite substantially in in a raising interest rate environment there seems to be really nothing that great to be pushing no, no real momentum driving growth engine um, and in Goldman Sachs in particular you mentioned increasing uh, expenses I mean it's all really around compensation so in Q4 Goldman Sachs saw compensation 
compensation benefits go up about 23% compared to the year prior. There wasn't a huge increase in personnel. This is all wage increases, particularly the highest earners, being able to demand much, much higher salaries. So we're seeing very substantial wage inflation. We saw that also at Citigroup, at JP Morgan to a certain extent. Uh, basically, the high earners, the people who are doing the investment banking, trading side of things, are able to demand much, much higher salaries. And uh, that is going to crimp the, the bottom line at these large banks in the coming year. And there was, a, there was an interesting line buried in the um, investor presentation at Goldman's. Um, the group said, uh, for the second quarter in a row, equity investments net revenues reflected significant net losses from investments in public equities compared with significant net gains in the fourth quarter of 2020. Are we also finding out that actually these banks are not very good at trading the market? Well, I I think Goldman Sachs in particular in the past has been very good at trading the markets and has done very well through volatile markets, not just volatile on on the upside, because anyone can do well when the volatility is driving you higher, but also volatile down. Um, Maybe that's coming to close. I mean, they had a very, very strong year in sort of the private equity venture capital side of things, uh, what they called sort of, which is buried within their asset management group for some peculiar reason. I'm not sure why it appears there. But the, the year overall was pretty good, but it's true the fourth quarter was down about 10 percent which is which is troubling in terms of their investment strategy uh, most of the other banks saw very strong gains in in those kinds of private equity investments and venture capital investments but yes it seems that goldman sachs for inexplicable reasons it's always very hard to figure out what that line item means in the goldman sachs earnings says there's a whole bunch of sort of rag bag of things that are, are, are bundled into that so you don't really know what's in it on, on what it what it really uh, amounts to but that is troubling it certainly is troubling that that's down 10 percent at a time when the markets were doing very, very well indeed. Octavia, good morning. It's Karen jumping in. I want to dig a little bit further into the wage inflation to see how much of this persists. If you look at the Goldman's number, they also grew their headcount. So adding to the employee count, that was up 8%, but they paid bumper bonuses. And that was a reflection of a very strong uh, record year that they had in profits, which of course uh, is uh, a big question we're asking now where profits go and whether that does mean bonuses are sustained. As you put these factors together, we talk about pandemic trends of getting people to come back into the office and Goldman's was pushing very aggressively, right, to get people back into the office. What does it mean? Do you think this wage pressure will be sustained? Well, the weight pressure, I think, is going to be sustained as long as we have inflation out there as a big factor. So I, I don't think the, the Fed is really going to make the take the necessary steps to bring inflation under control in the way that we might expect to. They're going to have to jack up interest rates much, much higher than that. And, and the wage inflation is not uniform throughout the, the economy. It's not that everyone sees the same kind of wage increases. It seems to be very much geared towards the high earners and the high earners dis- get a disproportionate amount of the wage inflation. Um, and so I think that will continue. I don't see any any real controls on that in, in in sort of the coming year. I think that's going to continue. We're going to see those wages keep on going up until the Fed really slams the brakes on at some stage and then it will come under, under control. But at this stage, it's really outside of these banks' control. They basically have to pay those salaries to keep those people on board. And it's not necessarily justified by high productivity. In the past, it was always, well, if you want a raise, you're going to have to... Uh, generate more revenues and profits, and, and, and that's the way it worked. Uh, right now, we're seeing basically the wage increases outstripping the revenue increases and the profitability increases. I want to get to the divergence we're seeing in stock prices in the banking sector, because if you just look at a basket of stocks, it looks like all banks are winners. But the performance of Goldman Sachs just even this year, down 10% now versus Wells Fargo, up 11%. And if you can take a longer term view and you can see the divergence over the past 12 months as well. 
How do you position around the sector? We're going to see more of this because of the interest rate story where some of the retail banks will perform better. Or do you think we've seen the largest amount of repositioning take place already? Well, like, like I said, the, the, over the course of the past year or so, it's really the investment banking and trading side of the house that, that, that won the day. So banks like JP Morgan, Bank of America, who had very strong franchises in that area, were basically buoyed by that kind of activity. And Wells Fargo, of course, doesn't have that. So, yes, over the course of the past year, the Wells Fargo stock has done really well and outperformed the other uh, members in the, in the banking sector. But if you go back a bit further, you'll see that it's actually been a miserable stock over the longer term. So it's done quite bad. It sort of bounced from one scandal to the next next and uh, and has had a great difficulty sort of finding a direction there i i suppose the 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 betting is that now the trading and investment banking looks like it's going to slow down in the coming year that the sort of the retail and bread and butter corporate banking is going to win the day and things are going to move in that direction but i don't see that much momentum there i mean home lending is a very very important factor at wells fargo they're a very big mortgage bank that's going to be very very soft in a raising interest rate environment we might see housing prices come under pressure and people are going to refinance their mortgages uh, in the way they would if interest rates were falling. So that's going to have a very, very negative effect on that line of business at Wells Fargo. Um, what was interesting looking at the Wells Fargo numbers is that they did have some very big gains overall in terms of revenues, but almost all of that was basically from their, their venture capital and private equity arm. So they saw one and a half billion increase in revenues there, and that basically won the day from that. As a result, the bank overall had a basically an increase of about 13% in revenues, but uh, that was all outside of its real core activity of lending and payments processing and things of that sort. So I don't think there's going to be any real momentum in the Wells Fargo stock moving forward. I don't see where that growth drive is going to come from for them. They just don't have it. So it's going to be a fairly sort of low growth, low margin kind of business, I think, uh, in, in the coming year. Octavio, I can go shopping all around the world, though, and um, I know that it's only the Fed really talking aggressively. Well, maybe the Bank of England as well about shifting the interest rate environment and maybe cooling economies. So what about looking at Asia or Europe for your banking exposure if you're so inclined to have these stocks in your portfolio. We know the UK banks, for example, are back to paying a, a better dividend, if nothing else. Well, I, I mean, yes, they've been allowed to pay dividends again. So the central banks, uh, the, the Bank of England and the European Central Bank has allowed that again. So they're back to paying dividends and that's sort of back to normality. Um, but there, there too, I, I think th th there's no real momentum there either. We are going to see, I think, increasing interest rates in Europe. You were talking about the Bund before and that moving up. But it's very hard to, I think... Uh, when you listen to Christine Lagarde at the ECB talk about what the interest rate policy is, I always sort of get a bit confused and feel I can't really follow what she's saying, what direction she has. It sounds like sort of, I want to say mumbo jumbo, but uh, uh, very, very difficult to see and discern what her strategy is overall and what direction she expects to go things. But I think they'll be pulled along in the wake of the Fed. So as the Fed increases interest rates, I think the ECB will feel compelled to follow course there. And bear in mind, we've seen inflation, particularly in Germany, hit you know, highs that we haven't seen in many decades. So they're going to want to get that under control as well. And the only way to really do that is to become more restrictive in terms of monetary policy and increase interest rates. And they, they're going to have to follow suit. They have no real choice, I think, there. Octavio, thank you so much for weighing in on the banks this morning. Appreciate your time. Octavio Marenzi with us, CEO of OpiMass. And coming up on the show, the biggest all-cash acquisition on record. We bring you the latest on the Microsoft Activision deal right after this break.
Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. Microsoft will buy Activision Blizzard in the biggest tech deal ever signed. The offer, which values the video game maker at $68.7 billion, also includes Activision's net cash, taking the figure up to $75 billion in total. Should Activision shareholders approve the deal, they will receive a $95 per share payout, a 45% premium on the firm's closing price last week. The deal marks the latest in a wave of consolidation for the gaming sector, following Take-Two Interactive's $12.7 billion acquisition of rival Zynga last week. And a quick look at the reaction across Japan, where we are seeing fairly sizable moves, a huge drop in Sony stock in the morning trade. And this uh, effectively as the market thought that the company will have to try and regroup and uh, potentially take out some other targets to try and keep pace now with Microsoft and Activision. The company was receiving a lot of press recently, positive press, about getting its content and its entertainment proposition right. But now Sony does look like it may be in catch-up mode. And so that's quite a significant turnaround in sentiment in a very short period of time. You can see the stock currently trading down at 12%. So a huge pullback and uh, one of the biggest one-day drops we've seen in the stock since the start of the coronavirus pandemic. So big ways we're seeing across the board. Meantime, Loop managing partner Gene Monster has told CNBC the deal represents a major step in the race for the metaverse. Number one is this collision course between Silicon Valley and DC. The second takeaway is just uh, the significance to the metaverse. This is the biggest news on the metaverse since uh, Facebook changed its name, which was more than just a name change. That was uh, anchoring in the company's direction. And you're right, is that gaming, the metaverse uh, gaming is going to be kind of one of the foundations. It's the first area of monetization. Uh, We've seen it in Roblox. And I just want to add one uh, vector to the conversation around gaming and the metaverse is uh, the definition of the metaverse is still ambiguous. I believe that it will be both 2D like we see today on a screen and also immersive experiences, some form of wearables. And so what you just described, I think, is a version is a, a, a part of the metaverse, but there is still this massive gaming opportunity. And I think it just sets up well. Uh, they're from Gene Munster. Go to tech events. Arjun, when you get to tech events, you notice that there's a very different track for some of the big gaming stocks, big gaming companies that are pitching to investors versus some of the other big mainstream technology names and startups. But it seems they're being folded together. What is that about? Is it purely because the metaverse has given us another interpretation that content is king? Yeah, sorry, Ken. I'm just so excited to talk about this story. I'm just jumping in there. But you're right. I think content is king. And that is really one of the key rationales behind this deal and why Microsoft has gone after Activision. If you think about some of the games that Activision makes, the likes of Call of Duty, the likes of Diablo, World of Warcraft, these are huge games, massive fan bases. And ultimately, Microsoft is just kind of taking that. Now, Microsoft has been criticized for being behind Sony when it comes to first party content on Xbox and their other 
gaming platforms like PC as well. This is a chance here for Microsoft to catch up. And obviously, content then feeds in to parts of other Microsoft strategy. The other one here is services and subscriptions. On the Xbox, Microsoft has something called Game Pass, allowing users to pay monthly fee for uh, several games that they can sort of play on demand here. And obviously, the more game content there, the better for Game Pass and allowing Microsoft to bolster that subscription service. The second part here, of course, is that metaverse play as well. Clearly, Microsoft game, uh, is say, saying that gaming will be the key to the metaverse, at least in the early stages there. And so that's why you're seeing this push towards this Activision uh, deal as well. And finally, eSports, something we haven't spoken about much, but World of Warcraft is a huge eSports game. Uh, and this is a big, big business that's only going to grow at this point as well, professional gaming. So those, what I would say, are the four kind of major rationales behind the deal. Uh, Phil Spencer, the head of uh, Xbox, spoke a little bit to our colleague stateside about his thinking behind this deal. Let's just listen into what he had to say. When we look at the competitive set that's out there, we look at the importance to us at Microsoft Gaming of people playing on mobile. We look at the coming metaverse, the opportunities that we need with great IP. Uh, we really saw this as an amazing opportunity because gaming's continued growth over the years. Microsoft's big on gaming. We're continuing to invest here, and we see it as a real strong catalyst for us in the consumer categories. So you heard there Phil Spencer talking about th as this a catalyst for, for consumer. Of course, we know Microsoft very much as an enterprise company. A lot of their uh, profits and revenue is coming from that cloud business as well. But this really is a huge push towards the consumer business. Of course, before I throw it back to you as well, guys, we've got to talk about some of the challenges here. The regulators will be looking at this very closely, both stateside and in Europe uh, as well. Uh, the other point here is the metaverse. Gene Munster spoke about it. It's not well defined yet. We don't know exactly how that looks like. And of course, it may require some pretty expensive hardware as well. That could be a challenge. And of course, Microsoft has the challenge here of <clears throat> cleaning up the culture at Activision. We know there's been some allegations here of sexual harassment um, and misconduct. And so Microsoft will have to go in there and fix some of those problems uh, that it sees with the company as well. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.